Mac Power Users, episode 499, Backups and Updates. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, joined by my old pal, Stephen Hackett. How are you doing, Stephen? I'm good, David. How are you today? Well, first of all, it's episode 499, which is kind of crazy, right? Yeah. I'm just looking at the number. We're almost there. Mm-hmm. Next week's episode is is going to, I already know what it's going to be like because we recorded it early. I kind of fell apart at the beginning. I think you did that to me on purpose. <laughs> but uh, it, it was a good show and looking forward to that next week. But this week, we wanted to take a minute to talk about two things. We've got these updates coming from Apple. You know, we're getting new operating systems for your your phone, your watch, your Mac, your TV. All these things are coming down the road. Um, it's been a long time since we covered on the show really how to prepare for that. And I think there are some things you can definitely do to help. Mm-hmm. This year in particular, because of some big changes on the Mac side. And um, we have not had an opportunity to discuss backups since you came on the show. And I think that, uh, number one, I want to hear your strategy on backups. And number two, mines have changed a little bit over the last couple of years. And, you know, the technology's gotten easier, but I just thought it'd be a good time to just cover the topic of backup. So today we're going to cover backing up and getting ready for all these updates. Yeah, the two really go hand in hand, right? You want to, before you go to an operating system, it's a great opportunity to evaluate your backups, make sure you have everything in place. And I think we're also going to talk about how to get other people in your life, make sure their computers are backed up, their devices are backed up. Because the reality is none of this stuff is all that difficult to implement basic things, but people just don't think they need it or they don't know about it or intimidated. So I think we can all kind of help the people in our lives be better prepared for, you know, device failure, hardware failure. Eventually, your laptop will croak or your iPhone will go down a water slide or something. and You want your data back. And so we're going to try to prevent some of those tragedies in all of our lives. And it's definitely not unheard of that you do a big system update and something goes wrong and you sure. lose data. So uh, this is an, a prime time to get that going. And and also, like Stephen was saying, we want to talk a little bit later about the muggles. I don't know what the word you use for that. But the, uh, you know, the people who are not really into this stuff and uh, how do we get them to kind of get on board with it. But before we do so, I think we need to do a check-in over at St. Jude. How's it going? It's great. So uh, September is National Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. We started speaking about this uh, last couple of weeks, where every year the Relay audience and sort of honestly like the Apple community at large, beyond just the Relay shows, uh, we set some time uh, aside to talk about the the work of St. Jude and to raise money for their organization. It's a children's hospital here in Memphis, Tennessee that that treats kids with cancer and other catastrophic diseases from around the world. I've met families from from all corners of the globe with kids at St. Jude, and they do it all without charging the families a dime, which is really incredible. And that's why this fundraising is is honestly so important, because we want to uh, make sure they can continue that work, not only for my kid, but for, of course, thousands of others. So our goal is seventy-five thousand. Uh, as of this recording, we're at twenty-seven thousand. That will be, I assume, much higher by the time the show comes out. Uh, but if you want to learn more and you want to give, you want to head over to stjude.org/mpu. Yeah, go in there, everybody. MPU has historically been a really big supporter of the St. Jude Drive with Stephen. And now that Stephen's on the show, I think we really need to show our support. So if you can't afford it, please go in and help out. 
That'd be awesome. And uh, one of the uh, employees at St. Jude is helping us with this campaign. She had this idea to torture Mike and I during the fundraising where anyone, uh, any donation, $250 or more, I will, will add a sticker to a dev- an Apple device and Mike, my co-founder at Relay, will remove a sticker from one of his devices. You may think, <laughs> well, that's, that's not a big deal. No, no, no. I <laughs> despise sticker-covered laptops and iPads, and he loves them. And so we are both suffering. Uh, as of this right now, I've got like 25 new stickers on my MacBook Pro. I'm linking in the show notes a Twitter thread where I am just every few days putting an update out of like, hey, this is what my devices look like now. Uh, this is uh, this is challenging for me. But yeah. it's uh, it's for a good cause. I kn- I know you, Stephen, and I know this is driving you crazy. I can just I can just feel the itchiness in, in your voice. It's not great. <laughs> it's not great at all. All right. Well, everybody, let's cover Stephen's MacBook and stickers and help support St. Jude. And and thank you all who have already given. I know there's a lot of you out there that have already done that. Absolutely. All right. Uh, so let's start with this idea of, of uh, backups. And I think. I want to take on the hardest one first. And in my mind, that's the Mac. Yes. Agreed. There's <laughs> countless ways to do this. I think we're going to talk about sort of some general ways uh, that cover most use cases. But first, I want to talk about some general backup principles, just some things that can help shape your backup strategy for your Mac. Some of these uh, solutions we're going to talk about have competitors that we're not going to mention necessarily because there's so many options. But these are sort of in my mind the guiding rules around backing up data on a macOS machine. Because the truth is that any piece of data, a Word document, a family photo, whatever, if it's just in one place, then unfortunately it is temporary because as look, Macs are better than ever, right? Like SSDs are incredible. They're nice and fast and light, a great battery life. Every computer eventually will fail. That's just the reality of the world we live in. And if your data is only on one device and that one device fails, uh, chances are it's gone. Or maybe it's only accessible through super expensive data recovery and maybe not even then. So having a multi-tiered strategy can really save your bacon. So having that PDF, you know, Word document, family photo on more than one physical device is really what we're after. Okay, I have a I have a war story. I've shared this before on MPU, but I'm going to share it again anyway for those who haven't heard it. And it was when I was at the Apple store once and getting some work done on my device, and there was a woman there whose MacBook hard drive failed. You know, it failed spectacularly. Mm-hmm. And she had uh, graduated from college a few years ago. She was active in her sorority, and she lost her entire college collection of photos. This is before iCloud Photos. You know, it was, you know, a few years back. But she sat there in the store, and the tears were just running down her face. She wasn't, like, sobbing out loud. It was even more tragic because she was crying without making a sound, Mm. you know? And I felt so bad for her, but I think about that all the time. I think having actually a couple of war stories in your pocket can help out uh, to inspire you and others to remember to back up. I'm sure you had some pretty bad ones when you worked at the Apple store. Yeah. In fact, while you were talking about that, I, I was reminded of the the worst case of a similar story. A woman at, at my genius bar with uh, a power book, because I was a genius a long time ago, and you know lost the hard drive, you know, 
we're talking about data recovery options, which are very expensive and definitely not a guarantee. Uh, but it, it came out in the course of conversation that she had family photos on there of, of a child that had passed away. And oh my gosh, boy, like yeah. I, if I could have taken Apple's checkbook out and written a check to cover her data recovery and guaranteed it would have worked, I would have done it. It's just it's just heartbreaking, and the reality is we have that sort of data now, right? It's it's not we're well past the days of you only use a computer for your work or only for school, right? Yeah. These devices have all of that stuff intermingled, especially the thing I always think about is photos, because you know you lose a paper or a project that's really terrible, but your kid is not going to be three year, three years old again, right? You can't recreate their fourth birthday party, yeah, and. It's so important. And the reason we're we're preaching this is because like we honestly, because we've seen it, right? We we know what that's like. And I I don't want anyone to have to go through that. I mean, I would be heartbroken. I would be uh, beside myself if I lost photos of my kids growing up. And uh and so I, I won't, you know, like as we're gonna talk about my our backup strategies as we go, I mean, it would be like a civilization ending event for me to lose my pictures. And at that point, Okay, right. If we're all gone, then the JPEGs can go too. But short of that, uh, I know that I'm going to be safe. And um, yeah. you have this great post you put in the show notes about the three, two, one backup rule. Can you walk us through this? Because I think this really encapsulates it nicely. Yeah, and, and I just wanted to say before we get into that, you know, in the case of backup, an ounce of provision is like a hundred pounds of cure. I mean, it, it's so trivial to do a backup system as we're going to talk about in this show. But the three, two, one backup rule, um, I've talked about it before. And every time I talk about it, somebody tells me that there's somebody else who came up with the idea. And I don't know that anybody knows who wrote up the first one, but this is a post by Alex Mayer. And the three, two backup rule, three, two, one backup rules is really easy to remember. You have to keep three copies of your data. You have to store two copies on different storage media. And at least one of them has to be offsite. Make sense? I love how simple it is. It's this is three copies, perfect. two two different storage media, one offsite. You know, if you can do that, you're probably going to be fine. I think some people look at this and think, well, my photos are in iCloud Photo Library, or all my Word documents are in Dropbox. And I would argue that while having things synced to a cloud service is good in terms of data redundancy, so you have your MacBook Air. Uh, it gets run over by a dump truck, and you can log into a new MacBook Air a few days later and log in with iCloud and Dropbox, and those documents come back. Cloud Sync is not really a backup. Anything with a syncing mechanism, if something goes wrong in one place, that is going to populate to those other locations very easily in the background. You won't even know it. And yes, there's you know Dropbox and these others have some short-lived data recovery where, oh, I deleted this document. Let me go undelete it from my Dropbox account. That's not really the same thing as a backup. It's a good step, and I think you can, you can factor it into what you're doing. But just saying that, oh, well, everything on my laptop is in Dropbox, so I don't need Time Machine, I, just, I don't think that's a solid way to move forward. It's better than nothing, but I would argue that it's not enough at the same time. Yeah, I think something Steven said, I want to put an exclamation point on, you know, cloud sync does not equal cloud backup. You know, it can be an in case of emergency break glass scenario, you know, maybe 
there's for whatever reason that's the only place you can go but uh, you, you know your dropbox uh, or even your icloud doesn't count as one of your three two one threes you know it doesn't count yep so so don't treat it that way it, because there's a lot of scenarios where you'll go to find that data and it won't be there uh, there is cloud backup and we're going to talk about that in the show but but cloud sync isn't enough so so you need you know i i guess if we scared everybody enough by now but the um you need to have a realistic system to back up your data. And the other piece of the three, two, one that I think is essential that a lot of people, even nerds that listen to MPU may miss is the idea of an offsite backup because um, offsite is real important. If you've got a time machine connected to your computer and your house burns down or somebody breaks in and steals your computer and the hard drive sitting next to it, you're still out of luck. So offsite is, is key. Right. I mean, if you're, iMac is on your desk and the backup for that iMac is on the desk. Like that's not that's not really two copies, right? It's it's one copy. It's two copies in the sense that if your iMac dies, the data is still on, on the hard drive. But as far as security and safety of that device, they're the same thing effectively. So you kind of have to think from like the risk management perspective of, oh, if a tree falls through my office or my house gets hit by lightning and burns down or we have a flood or someone breaks in and takes everything off my desk, right? Like those are kind of terrible things to think about. And I don't like thinking about the world through that lens. But in this conversation of three, two, one, that's a huge, uh, a huge deal. And thankfully getting data off site, as we'll talk about, is way easier than it's ever been. Uh, you can do it a bunch of different ways that are, are pretty easy and straightforward. So I think in the past that, you know, people thought that, well, that means I have to you know, go through a lot of things to get my data somewhere else. And that's just not the case anymore for, for most people, most sets of data. Now, one thing I'd like to talk about on the three, two, one is the two. We kind of skip over the two, uh, two different mediums. I'm not sure that really applies anymore. Um, for me, I can tell you all of my backups that I control are done on spinning disk hard drives. In the old days, maybe we put them on you know CD-ROMs or floppies or whatever. Um, in fact, in the show notes, Stephen wrote that he buries floppies in his backyard. Just in I, case. I love that. I love that. <laughs> but the um, but I don't do that anymore. Do you think that's a mistake? I don't think that. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think the different mediums is uh, as big of a deal as it used to be. I kind of view that part of the rule as more than one like physical device. Like I could separate the two and put one in my backpack and take it with me. So I don't know if it's as important at this point to have. I have a spinning hard drive on my laptop, so I want my data on a CD. Or you know, if you think back in the day, you know, magnetic tape or something like that. So I agree with you. I think. That particular language is going to be a little dated. And for me, it's just, can they be separated? Are they actually two different physical devices? Even if internally they both use spinning hard drives or they both use SSD, I don't think that's as important anymore. Yeah, but I would say when you talk about the the backup medium that you do need to be aware of its pitfalls. You know, um, hard drives don't last forever. If you uh, spin up a hard drive, put a bunch of data on it and put it on a shelf for 10 years, and you come back, there's a very good chance that's not going to spin up again and whatever on there is gone. So um, you need to, you know, routinely spin them up. You need to, you know, keep track of how old they are. I have a label machine. I just, when I buy the drive and add it to the system, I just put a label with the date on it and stick it on the back of the drive. And when I get to three to five years old, I start thinking about, you know, the next time Amazon has a sell, I'm going to take this one out of the rotation. 
this is probably not as big of a concern as it once was, but for a while there, you know, maybe your backup drive was like FireWire 400 and then your, your new computer didn't even have FireWire, so you have adapt back to it and stuff. That's all calmed down a lot in the world of USB, but you know, for a time that was a factor. Um, and at this point, I think, I don't, I don't think many people are backing up to like DVDs, but optical media also has a pretty short shelf life, especially if it's in the sun or gets, you know, hot and cold repeatedly. You know, you put a bunch of DVDs in a shoebox and put them in your attic, they're not going to last super long. And so the way I think about this particular aspect of this topic is if you have old backups that are on an old hard drive, you haven't gotten out of the closet for a while or you have all your college papers backed up on CD, maybe take this opportunity to move that data to something a bit more modern or, or, or something that's you know a little more reliable than what it is now because you don't want to be in a situation five years from now where something that's okay today you know, has aged out over that time period. So as we're talking about this today, think about that. If you have something that's you know been floating around a long time, even though you you don't necessarily need the data right now. Sometimes it's a good thing to, to move that data over to something a little fresher, if you will. Yeah, you know, maybe that's an, a, a new rule. You should say any, everything should be migrated at least within the last three years. Nothing should be on a backup device that is more than three years old. And you'll probably be safe. We, we just found we were cleaning out the house. We found my old MacWrite floppies, you know. Ooh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, this, this came to mind for me. I have a consulting client here in town, a musician, and I'm helping him get a new machine set up. And like he has basically years of work archived on a zip disk. And they're all like, oh boy. do you remember, uh, our listeners will remember, I'm sure, like the shelves full of, and you just like put zip disks, like slide the zip disk in their cases into the shelves. Yeah, they look great. They look great on the shelf. Yeah. It looks super cool, but he has... I don't even know. He doesn't even know. A decade's worth of work in those things. Oh, and my goodness. That, like, that's terrifying. Yeah. So, like, you know, we probably ought to, like, find, a, like, a zip disk, external zip disk reader and, and move that data to something else because those things are not going to last forever. I had a zip disk, and I had a, a case where it had little buttons where you'd press the button and it would pop out Ooh, in, on the storage. That, that's I cool. thought. Man, I thought I had it all figured out. You did point. have it all figured out. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. You just press a button, it popped out. It felt very, like... Uh, I don't know, very fancy. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by SaneBox. SaneBox has changed my relationship with my email because it learns what email is important to me and filters out what isn't. And it's, I don't even know how much time it saves me throughout the week. So it looks at my incoming email. I happen to use uh, G Suite for my work email, but SaneBox can connect to all sorts of things. Uh, and it's looking at what comes into my inbox. And if it's something that doesn't really matter. So, you know, I get a lot of PR pitches or just like random email. It can move them all into a folder named Sane later. And I, they're not in my inbox. They're not clogging up what I need to do there. And I can just go through my Sane later mailbox when I get a chance. And, and honestly, the hit rate is so good with SaneBox. Uh, but if there is something that I don't want there, I can drag it back in my inbox and it, it, it learns and it figures it out. There's also sane black hole. So some of those emails, I don't want to hear from those people again. You know, my, maybe my email address got sold is on some sort of list. I get all sorts of crazy things and I don't want them from that sender anymore. I can drag the message from into sane black hole and I don't hear from that sender again. It's like unsubscribing with a single click. It's, it's absolutely great. 
I can snooze email into the next business day or the weekend, and I can even set up reminders. So say that I send David an email and I want to follow up in a week, I could CC one week at samebox.com. And if David hasn't gone back to me yet, I get a reminder in my inbox saying, hey, you need to go bug Sparky again. It's it's fantastic. Samebox has a bunch of different plans starting as low as about $4 a month. And there's a 14-day free trial. And I definitely recommend the free trial because once you get used to your email working this way, you don't want to go back. And in fact, 66% of MPU listeners who have tried SaneBox end up subscribing. So I bet you're going to love it. Head on over to sanebox.com slash MPU and you will receive a $25 credit on any plan. That's sanebox.com slash MPU for 25 bucks towards any of their plans. My thanks to Sanebox for not only supporting our show, but making my email more manageable. All right, let's get in the weeds on some of the Mac backup tools. And I think we should probably start with Time Machine. I think it's a great place to start because I think anyone who is uh, using a Mac, look, Time Machine's built, been built in since like Leopard. Yeah. It's bulletproof. It's already there. You don't have to go buy third-party software. It's uh, it's definitely the, the place to start. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say it now. I have a bunch of K-Base articles in the... Yeah. Let's get the, okay. There you go. That sounds like Still a right now. number. Uh, <laughs> walking you through Time Machine, how, how it works. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk you through the whole process. You buy an external hard drive. You plug it into your Mac. The Mac asks if you want to use it with Time Machine. You click yes, and that's it. That's it? It's, it couldn't be easier. It could not be easier. Well, I mean, I'm sure the experience of having people show up to the Genius Bar and losing data is one of the big reasons Apple made it so easy. I think so, because, you know, Apple doesn't view data loss as its problem, right? Like, Apple isn't liable for that. But Apple's made up of people, and I think lots of people felt bad that people were losing their data, and they wanted a really easy tool to make people, uh, you know, make backing up more accessible, if you will. And Time Machine definitely does that. Um, You can back up to an external hard drive. A big question I get at this is, how big of a hard drive should I use for Time Machine? And my general recommendation is go with uh, twice the total capacity of your machine. So if you have a MacBook Pro with a 512 gig SSD, get at least a terabyte for a time machine drive. That That's the minimum. And the reason I say that is, is because of the way time machine works. So it backs up everything on your Mac automatically. Um, all, all files are copied. So the initial backup takes a while. But then it just backs up changes. So if you think about a folder uh, on your desktop and there's a single PDF in that folder, so the PDF gets backed up on Tuesday. On Wednesday, you add a JPEG to that folder. Well, on Wednesday, Time Machine will back up that JPEG. The PDF hasn't changed. It just backs up the JPEG. And then say Thursday rolls around and you make edits to that PDF. On Thursday, Time Machine is going to go get the changes that PDF and back that up as well. So over time, you're building a history on your Time Machine drive of the state of that folder and all other folders on your computer uh, as time progresses. And this is super handy because what this allows you to do is to say, oh, I need the version of this PDF I created four days ago, not three days ago, not five days ago, but right in the middle And Time Machine lets you do that. And the cost of that is that it eats up backup drive space, which is why I recommend getting at least uh, twice the capacity. 
Although on my iMac Pro, I'm looking now, I have a terabyte SSD and I have a four terabyte time machine drive. You can definitely go bigger. Yeah. But at least uh, 2X is what I recommend these days. It's so well named, time machine, because you can do that. You can go back in time. I just did that this morning because I screwed up one of the screencasts on the shortcuts thing I've been working on. And I had a good version yesterday. And rather than try and unwind what I did today, I just went in Time Machine, pulled out yesterday's version, and started from there. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's something that people forget they have, uh, but it's it's dead simple to use. Open Time Machine, and you scroll back. It, it's I even like the way they do it, the visual feel through the Finder, the way you can kind of scroll through it. This is not something that I don't think you need a um, to buy an SSD for. No, it's just going to chug along in the background and, and the way it's designed, the first backup will take a while. Yeah. But after that, it's just backing up things you change every hour. So any given hour, there's not that much data to move. And again, if we want a big volume, hard drives are so cheap that you know you can just get a four terabyte one pretty inexpensively and, and shove it under your desk somewhere. I, I do get a question about like which brand hard drive you should buy. And my honest answer is that I have no real allegiance to any hard drive brand uh, amongst the the name brands. So say between Western Digital and Seagate, yeah, whatever's the best capacity, the best sell with the best warranty among reputable brands. That's I say, just go for it. So my drives are like a hodgepodge of different brands that have been on sale various places over the years. I just don't think it matters because they're all going to fail eventually, and so get get something that that fits the budget. I wouldn't go buy you know Bob's brand hard drive. Yeah. Don't buy a hard drive from a guy on the side of the road in a van. But if it's a reputable brand uh, from a reputable store, I'd say get get the best deal you can get, honestly. If you want to get scientific about it, Backblaze, which is a company we're going to talk about later in the show, publishes their hard drive um, statistics because they buy a lot of hard drives. They do a lot of storage. And you can look at you know what brands do better or worse on their list. But for me, honestly, I've been buying the Seagate ones because they're cheap on Amazon. They come in five colors, so I can get different colors. I mean, like for me, gray is um, I think gray is Time Machine, and red is Archive. So I like when that. I when I look under the desk, I can say, oh, that's this one. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it just makes it really easy. That's cool. And I just I just run a camel, 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 and they go on sale. You know, often. Yeah. So when I've got one that's aging out, I'll just replace it, and then as we'll talk about later with our manic backup routines, I have more than just the ones under my desk. Um, mm-hmm. But the, uh, yeah, so time machine, I think is, is it's something that both novice and power users alike should all be using. Um, I, uh, whenever someone asks me to set up a Mac for them, they always want to like, sometimes they offer to pay me and I'm like, don't pay me. Just, um, I send them the Amazon link. I tell them to buy this and have it at their house. Mm-hmm. When I get there, that's my fee is I'm not going to set it up unless you have a backup drive. And it's a good, um, it's a good rule. It works. It works. People do it. It's kind of funny. We laugh about it, you know, and then, but then I, when they see how easy it is, it's great. Another thing I would suggest both for power users and novice users, if you can just get a drive that you just plug into the back of it. Um, you, we're uh, we're going to talk in a minute about network um, time machine, which is possible. But the simplicity, especially if you're on a desktop, of just plugging it in and forgetting is really, I think, the way to go. I agree. Uh, it, it's faster. It's simpler. Yeah, it's much faster. It's, it's not only faster to save, it's faster to access when you're trying to pull things off of it. Um, the problem, of course, is the laptop problem. You know, you're not at the desk all the time. Sure. 
What do you recommend in that case? Uh, I think in that case, if you have another Mac running, turning on Time Machine server and, you know, having a big external hard drive, you say you have a Mac mini or something or an iMac floating around, uh, I think is is probably the way to go. If you're using your laptop all over the house, if you're somebody like my, my wife, for instance, who has a MacBook Air, most of the time it's at a desk hooked into a LG ultrafine display. And so I have her Time Machine drive dangling off the back of that monitor and there are times where she uses the laptop, you know, away from her desk for a few days at a time. But I'm pretty much guaranteed that every few days, at least that thing is going to be on the desk and it will it'll catch up there. So, you know, I think look at how you use it. You know, if you're a student and you're on campus all day, you know, maybe have a USB drive in your dorm and make sure you plug it in at night. Just do do something. Don't let that don't let that hold you up. I will include in the show notes. Uh, this is one of those things. Maybe this happens to you, David, where I Googled set up time machine server and my blog post was the first thing on Google. Don't you love that? <laughs> I uh, put that in the show notes because that's what Google told me was the good article for it. I forgotten that I that I had written this, but here it is. I have what, what my wife's computer is a challenge because she's not going to take the time to plug a drive in. It's a laptop. That's her only computer. So my solution was uh, we did run time capsule for the longest time, but that router is bit the dust, you know, and I mm-hmm. didn't want to screw around with it. So I just put a drive and a cable in the little basket where we hold our TV remotes. And because she's always using her laptop downstairs on the kitchen table, whenever like I go to get the TV remote, I'll see it in there. And if I see the drive and I see her computer sitting alone on the kitchen table, I'll just plug it in. Mm-hmm. And it's it's getting backed up. I'm not even sure she's aware of it. Uh, another common question with Time Machine is about excluding files. So maybe you have something you don't want to go to Time Machine for some reason. You can do that in the Time Machine system preferences pane. There's a drop down where you can drag folders in. I don't have any recommendations around that. I back up everything to Time Machine because that drive is always in my possession. But maybe if you have something you know you want to exclude for whatever reason, it is doable. Another big question is APFS. So with macOS High Sierra last year, Apple moved uh, from HFS plus the file, the drive file format to APFS on the internal drives. Yeah. Time Machine can back up an APFS Mac, no problem. Clearly it can because, you know, Mojave, all these new systems come with it. But if you need to format a drive for Time Machine, it needs to be HFS plus. And if all that sounds like alphabet soup, if you plug in a drive and you say, and Mac OS asks you, do you want to use this with Time Machine? And you click yes, it takes care of it for you. But if you do need to format a drive, you want to make sure it's in HFS Plus. There's a link in the show notes to uh, an Apple support doc- document about that and how to do it. Uh, it's really not a big deal to get it to get it going correctly. If you try to back up to an APFS volume, I believe macOS will tell you that it can't um, and, uh, and it will give you prompts to get it formatted correctly. So n- not a huge deal, but that question does come up sometimes about this format. This will change in the future, but as we're recording this, with macOS Mojave being the current macOS release, uh, this is how things are. Yeah, I'm actually eager to see Time Machine evolve with APFS because it's a much more powerful file system. And I would imagine that Time Machine is going to get more efficient and probably more powerful mm-hmm. as Apple gets more comfortable with it and transitions Time Machine over to APFS. Yeah, they're doing like a few things. Like so one thing Time Machine does is local snapshot. So say like in your wife's case, that notebook may not be plugged into that time machine drive super often. The Mac is keeping up with the changes it needs to copy to time machine. And that is called like a local snapshot. And they've 
they've gotten a little bit better about how the way they make those, the way APFS gives Apple some additional tools to manage that sort of stuff. But Time Machine could become uh, more powerful and faster once they complete that transition. I think the reason they haven't is APFS is really designed for solid state drives. And I would imagine that 99 point something percent of Time Machine volumes out there are spinning hard drives. So yeah. I'm not holding my breath for that anytime soon. And the reality is it works great. Right? Like right now in front of me is my iMac Pro formatted in APFS. My four terabyte, whatever drive it is under my desk is HFS plus. And it, it works perfectly. So you don't have to worry about compatibility issues between the two. Uh, before we move on, restoration from Time Machine. Uh, people often talk about getting Time Machine going, but they don't talk about restoring files. We talked about going into the app and restoring individual files. But what if you want to set up a new Mac from a Time Machine drive? This is exactly why I think people should use Time Machine, because you have easy restoration. So if you are setting up a new Mac, you can, uh, in the setup process, there's a screen that says, hey, do you want to transfer your information? And the options are from a Mac or Time Machine backup, from a Windows PC, or uh, or to another Mac, if you're using a migration assistant. Like, you click the Time Machine option, you have the drive plugged into the new computer, and it moves everything over for you. And it's just like you never left your old Mac. It is about as seamless as it gets. It's built into the installer. And this is really why I recommend Time Machine, because when you need to restore, it's by far the simplest way to do it. Yeah, in the old days, migration assistant meant you had to have your old Mac and cable it directly into the new Mac. And mm-hmm. it was a little more harrowing. I mean, it worked, but I mean, there were problems too. Um, I really like the idea of just taking a time machine backup, plugging it into a brand new machine and pressing go. And it, and it sets up, it does a good job. Yep. And at the end of that process, so you've unboxed your new iMac, you restored from your time machine drive from your old Mac. Once that's all done, the Mac, the new Mac will ask you, Hey, do you just want to inherit all this time machine history you have from your previous computer? You click okay. And then you're backing up a time machine on the same drive moving forward. So Apple's even thought about that side of the process as well. All right. Time machine. Everybody do it. Tell your friends, do it. <laughs> yes. That's the message. <laughs> this episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander. Unlock your productivity with Text Expander. With Text Expander, you can make everything you write repetitively available everywhere you type. Text documents, spreadsheets, web forms, whatever. Keep your messages consistent, accurate, and up-to-date by sharing snippets with your coworkers. I do that at Max Sparky. I've got someone helping me out with some of the email support. I write those email replies, even the ones that she triggers remotely, all because we have a shared Text Expander for Teams account. Text Expander for Teams makes it easy to organize snippets for your support and customer service departments and allows you to get your best words out to all of your customers. With Text Expander, you can turn your snippets into forms with fill-in and pop-up fields, optional text blocks, autofill dates and times and graphics. If you're one of those people that has like a Word document or a text file full of big, long things that you frequently write in email and you have to go get it, you have to stop doing that. Go get Text Expander. It automates that process for you. And it makes it even better because with those fill-ins, you can customize each one of those replies. It's faster and better. Text Expander is available for Mac OS, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. And if you're listening to the Mac Power users, you get 20% off your first year. 
To do that, go to TixExpander.com slash podcast and make sure to tell them you heard about it here on the Mac Power Users. Unlock your productivity with TextExpander. Once again, that URL is TextExpander.com slash podcast and Mac Power Users. What about offsite uh, services? I think that's probably the next logical step. I want to divide offsite services kind of into into two buckets. We have like services like Backblaze, which is what I use, CrashPlan, there are others. Um, and then just the idea of having your drives somewhere else. So we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah, kind of the roll your own options. Sure. And I, I do both. Of course you do. These, <laughs> these offsite services... You know, most of the time on the Mac, they're a menu bar application. They sit watching your hard drive. They back up changes to a cloud service provider. Uh, like I said, I use Backblaze. Yes, they have been a sponsor of many relay shows in the past, but uh, it's a great product. I've used it before the sponsorship. I'll use it after the sponsorship. It's $6 a month per computer for unlimited space. So like in my family, in my house, we have four computers going to Backblaze. So I pay, what is that, 24 bucks a month. Yeah. The reason I like Backblaze is that it is the most native feeling of these uh, that I have tried. Crash plans, uh, Crash Plan actually has like pivoted away from the consumer space, and they basically just deal with businesses now. So they're still an option if you have a business, but if you're an individual, they're not a great option anymore. Uh, but their app on the Mac was always really bad. It was Java for a long time. It may still be. I had Crash Plan for years, and mm-hmm. it just started filling my drive with a temp file. Literally, I'd get the message my drive was full, and oh yeah, and then I'd delete it and try and figure it out. I reinstall. It's I, I shouldn't pour gasoline on the fire, but it, it was it was rough. It was rough. Yeah. So I, I I've been with Backblaze now for quite a while, and not not a problem, you know. So in fact, the the, the Backblaze client has engineers on it that worked at Apple for a long time, so they kind of understand how Mac app should should look and work. But what's really nice about Backblaze is that it will back up external drives. And so for people like me and you with big archive USB SSDs hanging off the back of our Macs, they get backed up with Backblaze. It will not back up network-attached storage. So say you have a Synology somewhere in your network. Backblaze on your Mac is going to reach out to that Synology and pull data into Backblaze. But if you have a couple of big external hard drives, it will it will grab that data, which is really awesome if you work the way that you and I work. And not, not counting my time machine drive, which is also directly connected. I've, I've, I've carved that out of the back blaze. I, I'm not, I'm, yeah. I'm not a masochist to them, but the, uh, but <laughs> not counting the time machine. I've got six terabytes of space attached to my, my iMac at all times. I'm sure, you know, like on the back blaze spreadsheet of customers they want to get rid of, I'm probably one of them. <laughs> Oh, I think you're okay. Backblaze, it's all secure. Files are encrypted on your local machine. They're sent via SSL. The data is encrypted at rest on their servers. Uh, Your private key is generated by your username and password. They don't have your password. You can enable two-factor authentication. So if anyone tries to log into your Backblaze account, it's not you. You will know about it. You'll need to provide a a two-factor code. And what I think is really cool and like the nerd in me really likes this is that Backblaze, they're not just upselling space at like AWS or Google or something like some of these other companies. And that's fine. Those are good options. But Backblaze builds their own storage pods. So you mentioned they do these reports about hard drive reliability, and that's in the show notes as well. But they also publish these reports on how they 
build these giant storage pods full of hard drives and uh, like down to the fact that they designed their own chassis and they have all of these things. It's all open source. So you can go in here and like build your own backblade storage pod, pod and put it in your house if you want. I mean, your family will hate you because it will be extremely loud. But if you wanted to do it uh, and, and they, they do all this and manage everything to keep costs down so they can build exactly what they need and not paying for things they don't need. And the nerd in me just absolutely loves it. It's great. I mean, uh, I I love um, when somebody solves a problem for you easily. And at $6 a month, uh, you're going to find out I'm not using a bunch of these roll your own services because once I found Backblaze working for me, I'm like, great, $6 a month. I've got a few drives attached, actually a lot. Um, and it's all getting backed up online. Done. Uh, one one other thing they do is they give you some great restore options. You can download files online. They've got you can download files from your Android or iPhone app, uh, which is individual files. So if you've got like if I've got my six or I guess plus the internal storage on my iMac, my eight terabytes. If I'm on vacation and I need to get an individual file, I can actually access it with an iOS device from their app. And then if everything burns down, you can have them mail you a drive, which is great. That's super cool. And I, I've used that iOS backup before. Like, oh, I just need one file and uh, I'm on the road. And, it, you know, Backblaze has it so I can log in to there and get it. So it's a great option. I think what's nice about this is once it's set up, you never have to touch it. So, uh, you know, it's just kind of like Time Machine. That way you get it configured and then it just sits in your menu bar and and just does its thing. Uh, sometimes people ask about like the the hit on your network and your bandwidth and you know, if you have capped internet access through your ISP, you need to keep an eye on what any offsite backup is doing, not just Backblaze. And they have some tools in their Mac app to manage that, manage the speed and that sort of thing. I have mine all set just to automatic, and my network never feels slow if Backblaze is churning on a bunch of stuff. Yeah, you know, as we talk about it, I'm thinking, I just need to get a Backblaze account for Daisy's computer so I don't have to do this madness. Yeah. With the, uh, I, I probably should still do the madness with the time machine, but just there should be just a regular backup happening at all times. Cause if something goes wrong and she loses data, it's my neck, literally my neck. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. Well, what about with some of the competitors? We, we were kind of mean to crash plan, uh, cause it, I had a problem with them. Um, I, I did look up crash plan. If you get a small business account, will back up from a network drive, which is very handy. If, uh, like you're running a small business. Uh, a popular player in the Mac space is ARC, A-R-Q. It has been around uh, a long time. I've gotten to talk to the developer several times. ARC started life as a a way to basically back up data on your Mac to sort of a dumb cloud provider. So Amazon S3, uh, Backblaze B2, which is Backblaze's sort of S3 competitor. It's basically just hard disk space in the sky, Google Drive, Dropbox, etc., and Arc is a Mac app that you can set up and, and link to one of those online accounts, and then it will back up data from your Mac to one of those uh, one of those providers. The the reason you would want to do this, it, it may be uh, cheaper for you to back up data to one of these uh, devices. And Arc has a bunch of pages on their website, kind of going through the, the prices of these various places. Maybe you need to put data in a particular place because of limitations at your workplace or, or something like that. So th there are lots of reasons for this. Arc also has this cool deal where you can run Arc on two Macs and basically back up 
to each other. So if you have like an external hard drive at home and at work on separate Macs, you could send data one to the other. And Arc also now runs their own cloud storage. So they run atop Amazon Web Services, Amazon S3, and you can pay them six bucks a month for a terabyte of space and use the Arc Mac app, which is really good, and and back up to that. So not unlimited like like Backblaze is for six dollars a month. In my mind, the way I view Arc, and I, I really like Arc, but I don't use it because Backblaze meets my needs just off the shelf. And something like Backblaze will do that for most people. But Arc is there if you need something more specific or you have uh, you want to take advantage of Amazon S3 or S3 Glacier or one of these other storage providers. I would say if you're interested in exploring that, go poke through the Arc website. They have a lot of details on those different things. But I think for most people, it's probably uh, too fiddly and maybe overkill for what m- most average people need. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I concluded. But I think if you had to store data on a special location, like for privacy reasons or whatever, um, Arc is the tool on the Mac. Yeah, so those are the big solutions, I think, at this point for Offsite. But I can think of so many over the years that I tried that, that didn't work that well. And, and it seems like the problem is pretty well solved now. Uh, there's there's something for everybody. You know, you can get a nice flat fee backup service like Backblaze, or you can kind of get more customizable service with ARC, ARQ. You know, I, just the idea of cloud backup when this whole game started was kind of questionable because data um, speeds were so slow and how are you going to get it back? Um, but I don't think if, you, if you've if you waited because of those problems, you shouldn't wait any longer. Just get one and set it up. It, it's fine. There are options, though, to do offsite backups without the cloud. So yeah. maybe you do live in a place where that internet upload is still a problem, right? If you're just stuck on satellite internet or, or something like that. This is where a lot of people can turn to, hey, I'm going to copy everything on my hard drive I'm going to store that hard drive somewhere else. So if an asteroid hits my house, uh, it won't hit my safety deposit box in the next town over or whatever. There are a bunch of ways to do this. Uh, Time Machine, actually, you can use multiple uh, volumes with Time Machine, multiple targets. And so you can have a Time Machine drive that you have plugged in once a month and store that elsewhere. What I like doing here, though, is, is bootable external drive. So these drives, you can create them with uh, Carbon Copy Cloner or Super Duper. There are a couple other options. Those are the two popular ones. Yeah. And basically, if if your iMac, you know, the SSD in your iMac just went out, you could plug this drive in and boot your system from your backup. This is a great troubleshooting tool, and it gives you a complete clone of your Mac in an external hard drive. And so I do this, all of my drives around my house. So my external storage, my wife's MacBook Air, our iTunes drive, all of that stuff gets cloned to an external external hard drives and I store them elsewhere. So even though all of that stuff is on Backblaze, I also have them all safe and sound in a undisclosed location. Wow, that makes it sound really secret. Like do you are they in a satellite circling the earth? I mean I know you like you do that show about space. I've already said too much. I use Super Duper. I I, I paid for the license for Super Duper like a long time ago. I feel yeah, but it, it, he continues to make it work with every operating system upgrade. Both uh, Carbon Copy Cloner and Super Duper have got great automation support over the last few years. So, like with Super Duper, at least I know you can just plug in the drive, and as soon as it sees the Super Duper drive plugged in, it does its thing. 
you don't push any buttons um, and or you can have it plugged in uh, permanently and then it could at a certain time every day update you know if you pay for the license it does those delta updates so it doesn't have to erase and recopy your entire drive every time it runs and just like Steven said, they are plug and play. This would be maybe a candidate for an SSD drive if you were, if you had the extra SSD storage and you wanted to be able to get that thing running really fast uh, when attached to another computer, you could do that. Uh, it's just a great solution. I mean, a whole disk encryption, whole disk copy. Um, that was the solution before Time Machine existed. I think it still has a place. It does. And uh, I like Carbon Copy Cloner. I like you have used CCC forever. You know, you said you bought Super Duper license years ago. I've just used Carbon Copy Cloner for a long time. Both are excellent utilities. The Venn diagram of their features overlap very tightly. Um, you may find that you just like the layout of one better than the other. You cannot go wrong either way. So I don't I don't think we have a recommendation one over no, the other. Agreed. They're both great. It's an embarrassment of riches. And what's cool about this is you don't necessarily even have to just do bootable external drives. If you have a project folder, you want to copy to an external drive every night, you know, outside of the realm of time machine, you can set up even little jobs with these applications. And uh, they're, they're a great, a uh, great tool to have around on your Macs. Yeah. Another one I use for little jobs is Chronosync, okay. which I don't use to copy a whole drive, but it will watch a folder and then it, it can you can save it in, in essence as a script where it'll watch the folder and then when you have it run every set period of time it'll sync the deltas either the sync between two or it'll sync to the archive where like if you delete something on the source it'll delete it on the archive and if you add new it'll add it to the archive it's a some of the folders like for instance my apple photos library uh, uh Sync puts it on several drives constantly because I just really don't want to lose pictures. Yeah, it's I, I don't have a lot of recent experience with Chronosync. My experience is all pretty old, so I don't want to judge it based on that. Uh, it does seem like it is extremely powerful, but maybe a little bit fiddly, which it's not a bad thing if you have a, a specific task. So yeah. like all the stuff, there's multiple ways to do it. I mean, like you could do this in the terminal with like rsync commands too. A lot of these apps are just putting nice UIs around system tools, but um, yeah, Chronosync looks like it's uh, it's quite powerful. Yeah, it does take a little bit of a learning curve to get it running, but once you get it done, you save it, and then you just press a button. Uh, it is part of the setup package, the the basic version, which is... Awesome. I, I've paid the license for Chronosync, which is another one of these softwares that I think they tell you you never have to buy an upgrade once you buy it, but I still just download the the basic version from setup because that's easier and uh, it gives me all the tools I need to do the, the basic file file backups I do with Chronosync. We're going to take a quick break and talk about hover. One of the show's longest running sponsors. We know we all love tech and learning about tech and hover is a great tech company to talk about. Their tools are a big leap for people wanting to start projects because every business or project or idea starts with a name and on the web, that means starting with a domain name. Hover has over 300 unique domain name extensions to choose from. So no matter what you want to build, there's a domain name waiting for it. Of course, there's all the traditional .com, .net, but then you get into some fun ones like uh, .coffee, .ceo, and you can really have something that really stands out. And they have excellent technical support to answer any questions you may have. 
and they're dedicated to getting you online, not upselling you for services you don't need. In fact, Hover has free who is privacy, so bad guys don't get your info, a really clean user interface when going through the shopping cart, so you're not going to get things added on unexpectedly. They have monthly sales on popular top-level domains. It's really pretty easy to see why Hover is the popular choice for people wanting to start businesses or projects. I've used Hover for years. Uh, my domain, 512pixels, is there and a bunch of associated domains. And the whole experience is great. When I have something coming up for a renewal, Hover just sends me an email saying, hey, this is coming up. Unless you want to auto-renew, you know you have time to turn it off if you want. Uh, but I want to keep those domains renewing, so I let it go through. And anytime I've ever had a question about DNS or something else, the Hover support is just, uh, it's out of this world. Buy your domain and start using it today. Go to hover.com slash MPU to get a 10% discount on all new purchases. Once again, that's hover.com slash MPU. Make a name for yourself with Hover. Our thanks to Hover for their support of the Mac Power users. So uh, how do you back up all your stuff, David? So many ways, Stephen. So many ways. Now, actually, I feel like my backup system has taken a turn towards sanity over the last few years. It was a little insane for a while. For the Mac, the first step for me, of course, is Time Machine. I have Time Machine plugged in at the bottom of the computer. It's always running. I don't even think about it. I rarely access it except when something goes wrong, like what happened to me this morning. Uh, but I, I just love having it there. It's my old friend always backing up. And I did switch over to Backblaze several years ago, and it's the same thing. You don't even think about it there. Um, once in a while, I'll get like an update to the software or something and go up there and look and see that I'm entirely backed up to Backblaze. And it's just kind of shocking to me because I generate massive size files when I'm working on videos. Backblaze just manages to get them, get them put up there. Where I start to go off the deep end a little bit is all these archive drives I've got attached to my computer. You know, I've got a, a big Seagate, terab uh, I think it's four or five terabyte drive underneath. Um, that gets copies of a bunch of data from my iMac. Um, I've got that SSD that I, I don't know, how would you say I attach it to my Mac? I don't know. Um, In the most upsetting way possible. Yeah, so <laughs> almost like, I, I almost just like, should have just screwed it to the back of the iMac, just like put some screws through it. But, but it, it uh, I've got that there too, that is holding. So, so the way it works, I, of course you run out of room on your SSD. It seems like it's always the case, especially if you work with media files. So I've got the active media on the internal drive of the iMac and I've got the inactive, but you know, needed, sometimes needed media files on that external SSD. And both of those are getting pushed via Chronosync um, updates to the archive drive attached to it. In addition, that archive drive also has other backups of things that are just kind of like long-term storage. And so because the archive is attached to the iMac and because I have a Backblaze account, those things are always getting backed up offsite. But then what I did is I keep buying these Seagate drives. The five terabyte ones are big enough to hold all of my data, all my key data. And I, I have them sprinkled around like, you know, I don't know, like Johnny Appleseed's apples, I have I have <laughs> drives. You know, I have them. I have a, I have one in my drawer sitting next to me. I've got some in some other places. I've got one that's offsite, so I've got an additional offsite that way with my sister in law, where 
she just keeps it at her house. And once in a while she'll come over, I'll be at her house and I'll grab it and replace it with another one. So there's two that are constantly swapping between the two. And granted, those aren't up to date backups, but they're within a month of up to date. Um, so I've got that as well. Let me think. I think that's about it. That's all. Uh, and I guess what I would say is the photos library is there's like, I think there's like 10 copies of my photos library. I mean, it's just like everywhere. Anytime I find an extra drive, I just put a copy of the photos library on it. That's uh, not a bad idea. Uh, out of everything on my machine, that's the most important to me. Yeah. Mine is uh, actually very similar to yours. I use Time Machine for my internal iMac SSD. I have two four terabyte SSDs on externally for storage. One is sort of cold storage. The other is kind of warm storage. Like I've said before, the line between those two SSDs is very thin. Yeah. Those uh, also get sent to Backblaze along with the internal SSD. So I've got quite a bit on Backblaze. And then I use Carbon Copy Cloner to create offsite clones of every drive. Uh, and I update that about once every two to three weeks. So that uh, set of offsite drives, there is one labeled iMac Pro clone. There's an archive clone. There's a you know external SSD clone. Yeah, clone for my wife's notebook, one for my notebook. So I have several offsite drives, and uh, like you said, they're not the most up to date, but they are close enough where I could, if if something really catastrophic happened, I could uh, get to them, and I make them bootable for the internal drives, which is really nice. And uh, those are all rotating storage. This is all hard drives because it doesn't, you know, backup drives are totally fine for, for rotating storage. And uh, and that's sort of what I've done for a long time. So uh, I feel like I'm following in the steps of 321. And if I lose something, Time Machine is where I go first uh, and then Backblaze. But if I ever need to recover a lot of data, it would be that um, those offsite drives. So for instance, a couple of years ago, the external hard drive that had some iTunes stuff on it uh, went belly up unexpectedly. And, you know, iTunes is a thing where I could re-download any purchases, but it would take a long time. And so basically I, I swapped in the clone drive and downloaded, I think, the one movie that it didn't have in, in like the interleaving couple of weeks. So it's nice that you have options when you want to recover. And that's a big thing people miss is like, make sure wherever you're storing this stuff, you can recover it easily. Yeah. Even if it's just copying it in Finder, like that's better than nothing. But if you're using Time Machine or Backblaze, whatever you're doing, make sure you can get that data back in a timely fashion. Yeah, I forgot to mention that I do use um, uh, SuperDuper on my iMac. I don't do it on my laptop. It's not my laptop, actually. But the um, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, you just really assumed. Uh, <laughs> I know. I'm going to give it back to him at some point. But the uh, but with the iMac, I um, when it before I do a major upgrade. Even the point one upgrades, I just run. That's when I run the super duper. I just put, I, I attach it and download it before I do an, a system update. Yeah, and uh, and then I just stick it in the drawer. And I've, I'm getting uh, lackadaisical about it because I never seem to use it or need it. You know, one day I will, of course. The one thing that we didn't really mention throughout this whole extended discussion is you do need to test your backups. So whatever system you're using, make sure you go into your time machine, into your archive drives, or, or try and download some files from Backblaze. Just make sure everything's working. You don't want to find out after something goes wrong that your that your backup wasn't working. It's very easy to test those these days. I, I remember one time I worked for a firm where they had a tape system. It was very complicated. Oh, gosh. And they didn't realize for like a year the tapes weren't oh, working, no. you know. And uh, fortunately, 
we had, it was, I worked there of course. So, uh, when we set it up, I said, can we also just attach a hard drive to the back of it? And they did. And the hard drive was our, uh, our fail safe, but the tape drive that we had been screwing around with for a year wasn't even working. Okay. Um, that's the Mac. <laughs> yeah. What about, okay. So what about the person who isn't going to listen to Mac power users for an hour on backups? What do you tell them or how do you get them to back up? You plug a hard drive into their computer and turn time machine on. Yeah. And then you take their debit card and set up backbooks. Yes. My, my advice. Exactly. Those two items. This is September. The holidays are, are near. It's kind of a nerdy gift to get like your dad a, a four terabyte hard drive, but maybe you just like include that in the holiday plans. You know, you're going home for Thanksgiving. Yeah. You're going to get asked about how to check email. Like just make sure everyone's getting backed up. It's a good opportunity to do it. You can get a time, you know, external hard drive for time machine so cheap. Like if it's somebody in your family, you just need to do it as a gift. Like that's better than getting the phone call saying they've lost everything. Uh, so time machine, definitely time machine and backblaze if they can swing it. It's a great way to go. Um, the uh, And the thing about when working with someone who's not into this stuff, I think the key is finding solutions where they don't have to do anything. And that's why I think Backblaze and Time Machine, Time Machine less so unless it's a stationary Mac, but Backblaze in particular are great solutions because they don't even know they're running. So let's uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about backing up our iOS devices. Much easier. Much easier. Much easier. You really have uh, sort of two paths you can take. Uh, the first one is using iTunes or in Catalina Finder. <laughs> it's in Finder now. Yeah. But uh, basically what this is doing is using your Mac or PC to make a, a backup file of the, the contents of your iOS device. So iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch. And uh, you do it over cable. So it means it can be way faster than iCloud if you have poor internet access because iCloud backups require Wi-Fi. They don't work over LTE. And, you know, again, if you're somewhere where your upload speed is pretty abysmal, this can be a, a nice way to keep your stuff backed up. There are a couple of things to look out for here that we wanted to highlight. Uh, one, by default, these backups are unencrypted. And so that means that uh, app passwords, health data, and Apple Watch settings will not be included in your backup uh, by default. And uh, the way to fix this is when you go into iTunes and you select your device and you and you hit the backup button, the pop-up will ask you if you want to enter a password. And you do, that password will encrypt the backup and it will include all of that data. Now, that is a password you do not want to lose. So go put it in your password manager, whatever that is, because if it's time to restore from that backup, say you buy a new iPhone and you want to restore the backup or something happens to your phone and you need to wipe it and start over, if you don't have that password, that backup is not usable. And uh, the Mac will ask you if you want to save it in the system keychain. You can do that, but you need to know that password moving forward because... If you lose that key, then uh, that password is just dead weight. Yeah, but it's so useful if you do encrypt it, because then when you restore it, it restores your passwords and your health data, and it saves you so much time of entering your passwords over and over again as you mm -hmm. work with a unencrypted restore. I, I wish that, I mean, I don't understand why that's not just the default. Yeah. Uh, I think it should be, but definitely you want to hit that, hit that option. And uh, I've done this. Um, 
I've done this a lot over the years, and you can use this, um, you know, moving to a new device, which we'll talk about. Uh, but David, you brought up a good point about the space these takes up, and this is something that I, I haven't thought about in a while because I don't, I don't use this day to day. Yeah, I was, I was noticing on um, one of the laptops in our house that it was full of the, the drive was full, so I started looking into what was using a lot of space, and it turned out we had like four or five different iOS devices that we didn't even use anymore backed up to that computer taking mm-hmm. a significant amount of space on the drive. So uh, when you go into the um, the iTunes preferences devices, and I guess that'll be under Finder once this moves to Finder in a month, um, you, can, you can see the backups that are on the drive and you can remove them. Um, at the time I did it, I actually just dug it out in the library application support slash mobile sync slash backup folder you kind of have to dig for, but they're there as well. And I was able to uh, free up a lot of space. So these are Mm -hmm. great to make, just make sure you're aware of them. And if you're having space problems, this may be a place to get some space back. Something like, something like a Daisy disc can make it easy to to find those. Yeah, exactly. I I like to kind of treat that the same way I treat my carbon copy or clones or my super duper clones is, is I don't do this all the time. I, I'm not going to get a copper wire out and connect my phone to my Mac very often. It's just not something I want to do anymore. I feel like I've, I've done my time with that cable. Um, but before major updates, that's a great opportunity to do it. Like before I installed the betas, I did it. And, you know, before the point one updates come out, unless I get the point one without realizing it, like I did last week, <laughs> um, I would, I would do that backup and always, always encrypt it. And it's, uh, it's nice for people who don't, pay for iCloud storage, uh, which is kind of the next, uh, really the secondary yeah. way you can do this. You can use iTunes or you can use iCloud. Uh, this is found in the settings app on your iOS device, iCloud, iCloud backup. And it works when on Wi-Fi and charging. For most people, that just means at night, right? You put your phone down on the wireless charging pad or you plug it into lightning yeah. at night and you're at home, it will back up. It includes nearly all data and settings stored on your device. Uh, there are some exceptions. So things that are already in iCloud. So say that you sync your contacts and calendars to iCloud. It's not going to back that up again. It already has it. So that's uh, sort of a big s- chunk of data. It doesn't have to worry about if it's already in iCloud uh, or if it's stored in other cloud services. So like Gmail or Exchange email won't be backed up in this. Um, it does not back up Face ID, Touch ID, or Apple Pay information and settings because that data is only local to your device for security purposes. So yeah. if, you, if you set up a new phone, you have to reset up Touch ID or Face ID or whatever. That is to be expected. I don't think it's even possible to back that data because of the way it's stored on the device. Absolutely. In fact, it's this, this goes for the iTunes stuff as well. That stuff stays on device, which is the way I want it to be yeah. and the way it should be. Look, this means that you're probably going to need to pay for iCloud storage because the five gigabytes a month that, that are free, you're going to burn through very quickly. Yeah. I, I know that some people are upset on that on like the principle of the thing, and I totally understand that. But this backing this up is so easy. And for most people, unless you just have like a ton of devices, the 50 gigabytes for 99 cents a month is more than enough, even for most people's iCloud photo libraries, you know, and you can pay more if you need it. We're on the two terabyte plan because we have a family sharing account. But for me, the the little bit of money it is a month to know that my iPhone and iPads are backed up and I get all the other benefits of having iCloud storage. 
uh, that's well worth it for, for me. Even if someone just has a single iPhone, you're probably going to go for that free limit. But I, I understand and I wish Apple gave us more space, but in the world that, that they don't, uh, I think that it's it's a reasonable expense a month to, to back up a really expensive iPhone for you know a, a buck or three a month. It seems to make pretty good sense to me. Yeah, well, it doesn't make sense to me, to be honest with you. I mean, I think you have to do it. You don't have a choice, but when you pay a hundred dollars extra to get additional storage, but then they say we're only we're still only going to give you five gigabytes of storage. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Yeah, I'm just saying it, it in that world where that is true. Like paying for it makes sense for the benefits you get. Yeah, I, I, do, I wish we didn't have to pay for it. But yeah, oh, totally. It's it's criminal. They only give us five gigs. Uh, yeah, I agree. I guess we're on the same page. It's it's a no brainer. Pay it, pay it for your. You know, paid for your elderly parents, paid for your children, paid for the people, that, you know, the immediate people in your life that don't know better. And the people that aren't your immediate people, just tell them to pay it. Mm-hmm. You know, use the, you know, cup of coffee speech or whatever works for you. But the, the thing that, you know, it really, I mean, getting back to the underlying premise of backup is photos. Um, if you don't have enough storage to cover all of your photos, and your phone, you know, falls into the river, you're going to lose photos. It's just a given. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. so paying a dollar, somewhere between one and five dollars a month to make sure you get those stored is is a no brainer. But I, I feel like Apple should be able to find a way to do this without us having to pay. And I think the reason I mean, number one is I don't like being chiseled. But I think the bigger reason is just think about customer satisfaction you know, Tim always likes to talk about that. What's he call it? Uh, customer sat? Customer sat. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, how many people, because they aren't going to pay a dollar a month, are going to lose photos and be very angry with their Apple devices when that happens? I mean, it's a solvable problem. I, I, I always wonder, is it just because the number of iPhones, if suddenly you gave 50 gigs, would they be, would their server farms be overwhelmed? I mean, I don't know what the re- Maybe that's the reason. I'd imagine those numbers get wild. Like I'm sure they're already like sort of hard to understand, even five gigs per account. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to solve that problem, but I feel like Apple needs to do, Uh, yeah, needs to do something. But honestly, if someone put me in Tim Cook's chair, I would say today, I want someone to start solving that problem. I mean, I don't want people who spend a thousand dollars on our phones to ever worry about losing photos. I just, it seems to me like that's a solvable problem. Maybe it means you've got to put, some more billions into, uh, I don't know. I'm, I, maybe I'm simplifying. It's very easy from the outside to say stuff like this. So I, I don't know, but I do wish mm-hmm. that people who, who bought these very expensive devices would not have to worry about that. And, and I, I just, as someone who's an enthusiast, I get so tired of hearing from friends about, well, I'm not going to give them a dollar a month. I'm like, no, you probably shouldn't have to, but you, you also, you should, uh, anyway, um, backup. Make sure you turn the iCloud backup on, uh, even if you're going to do the um, the attach to the uh, Mac, you know, cable storage. That's great, but the you know the iCloud backup is in, is encrypted by its nature. It's always running. It's just it's so nice. I mean, all the nonsense we just talked about on the Mac. We spent an hour on the Mac. You don't have to do it. You don't have to worry about that stuff. I mean, if you have the iPhone with sufficient iCloud storage, you're largely fine. I've used iCloud backups for a long time. ICloud's been 
bulletproof in this regard. I don't know how many phones I've restored with iCloud backup. Like, yeah, it's been great. Yeah, and it didn't start out that way. I mean, Apple, you know, good on Apple for as much as they've improved that over the years. But I, I use iCloud. That's it. And then, like I said before, major updates, I will connect it and make an encrypted backup on my Mac. But, but that's like maybe two or three times a year I do that. Mm-hmm. So now that you've got it backed up. Uh, what about restoring your iOS device? It's uh, it's really straightforward. So if you've used the iTunes method, you plug your device into iTunes, and when it shows up as a new device, there's a restore from backup button. And if you had a password on your crypto backup, you put your password in, and you're off to it. If yeah, you used iCloud... That's the fastest way, too, I would say, probably. It, it is fast, because it's local data just over USB, right? Like, you're not yeah. waiting on iCloud to download a bunch of stuff. If you did use iCloud, though, during the quick start process of setting up a new device, just like on the Mac with Migration Assistant, it says, hey, do you want to uh, restore data from another source? And you can plug in your iCloud credentials, and it will it will download uh, your latest iCloud backup. Uh, and new this year, as of uh, iOS 12.4, so that most of us will experience this with iOS 13 or if we buy a new phone this fall, you can use uh, Direct Restore, which allows you to run a cable in between two iPhones and move data directly, which is pretty cool. So you need like a SD to U or a lightning to USB adapter, then a USB to lightning cable. So it effectively you have a lightning cable in each end. It's kind of funny looking. Yeah. Lightning to lightning. <laughs> yeah. But it will transfer that data uh, directly from device to device. This is this is new, and it seems really useful in a lot of situations. So you got yeah, really kind of three main options there. Yeah, I think that's going to be really helpful uh, for like if you get a new phone this year. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace and enter offer code MPU at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. I love Squarespace. I use it for all of my stuff. Mac Sparky, my Sparks Law website, everything does it. And you can too, because no matter what it is you want to create, whether it's an online store, portfolio, or blog, Squarespace has got you covered. I have to admit, I love the internet, but I don't want to be an internet web programmer. And that was the problem I was facing before I found Squarespace. I was using sites that had all this crazy nonsense and plugins and things that weren't working properly. And I just got tired of it, so I signed up for Squarespace. And ever since then, it's just been great. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. With a Squarespace account, they start at just $12 a month. And like I said, I've got my whole Max Sparky empire running on Squarespace. And you can start with a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash mpu and when you decide to sign up use the offer code mpu to get 10 percent off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for the mac power users if you've never signed up for a website if you've never created your own website just go on and get the free two-week trial and just try it out see how easy it is to build your own website and then you'll come up with ideas to use it once again that's squarespace.com slash mpu and the offer code mpu to get 10 percent off your first purchase Thank you, Squarespace, for all of your support of this show and Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Okay, uh, so we've been going on backup for a while, but I want to talk about getting ready for Catalina and iOS 13 for a little while. 
Um, as we record this, Catalina isn't far off. Apple has the September 10th announcement that's going to be coming up shortly after the show publishes. We'll get a lot more information then. I guess, you know, the grapevine is maybe Catalina won't ship as early as we thought, but it is coming at some point. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I guess the first question is, do you have a device that will support it? Yeah, so the system requirements are uh, a little bit changed from previous years. Any one port, you know, 12-inch MacBook is supported. And then the MacBook Air, Pro, Mac Mini, or iMac, you need a 2012 or newer. So if you have an early 2011 iMac, that's no longer supported. 2012 or newer for all of those models. And then the iMac Pro and the 2013 Mac Pro are also supported. Uh, Apple still does a good job of supporting devices for a long time. You can run Catalina on a device that you can't get support for anymore because it's a legacy product, which is kind of funny. Yeah. 2012 for most products, 2015 uh, for the MacBook, 2013 for the Mac Pro. I think this may be the last year for my wife's laptop. I think it is a 2012. And it, it could be. Generally, they change this every other year. Uh, so you may have one, you may squeak by one more time, but yeah. I would imagine that sooner rather than later, they'll move this to 2013 yeah. uh, or 2014 as time, time marches on. All right. Well, um, so make sure you've got a current machine. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to talk about the features of Catalina in a future show. We've got a bunch of content. Uh, we've been running betas. We've got a whole bunch of opinions and ideas about it. But today we're talking about getting ready. And the one, I guess maybe two points I would talk about in getting ready is number one is just the security stuff. You, you know, and we'll talk about this more in depth on the show when it releases. But uh, Apple has taken a turn, I think, on security that I'm not entirely happy with. So Catalina means a lot of things in this regard. So some cool things are, like the system volume is now read only and your user data is on a separate volume that is obviously read write to you. This will cause some issues for people on day one. So for instance, I'm running Catalina now full time on my MacBook Pro and I had to find a, a beta of Backblaze that would work with it because the way they monitor f- files didn't work. Yeah. So you're going to run into some issues there. If you have any like system utilities, you want to make sure that they're ready for Catalina. The part of this that I'm not excited about is there are, at least in the beta, there are a lot of pop-ups and interrupts while you're doing things. So uh, we saw this in Mojave a little bit where you had to you know, add an app to the system preferences for like full disk use. And Apple was never really clear when you need to do that. Something just wouldn't work until you did it. That sort of continues in Catalina. Anytime you a new app looks to write to your desktop or documents is going to ask you if you can do that. I think it's heavy handed. I think people will click okay without reading it after the third day. And that is not a good situation to be in because you want people to read security alerts and people are going to start ignoring them. This could change before it comes out, but at least in the beta, I feel like Apple has gone too far in some of the, the warning stuff that, that people are going to be presented with over and over. Yeah, I agreed. Um, but and we're going to talk about this in more in depth when they actually release it. Um, but the thing that you really need to be thinking about as you prepare to install Catalina is the transition from 32 to 64 bit apps. The Apple's warned us about this. This has been going on for a couple of years. But if you've got a 32 bit app on your computer uh, this year, they mean it for real. It's not going to load. It's not, it's not going to work. And um, we talked about this utility a couple of months ago, but there's a Mac app called Go64. There's a link in the show notes. 
download it, run it. It will give you a report after it runs telling you any 32-bit software on your Mac. If you were like me, you will be surprised on how much is still hanging around. And you can uh, be in the process now of preparing for that transition because there is no way forward for these apps. 32-bit apps are going to be gone. That means apps that use the old Carbon framework are all gone. Most people are probably okay for most things. But you know, if you have that one Mac app that you've used for years and years and hasn't been updated in a long time, those sorts of programs are going to be the ones that are at risk here. And so I would highly recommend going to check out Go64, run it, and see what you have to do. Because once you install Catalina, it's a one-way street without you know pretty major surgery. So you want to do this preparation now to be ready when it comes out. Yeah. In fact, I think that is probably step one. This is something you can do today if you're listening to the show. We'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. Download and run Go64. It just takes a minute. It's a small app. St. Clair Software. It's the same people who make um, the, uh, uh, what's the name of that app? The uh, Default Folder. Default Folder. X10. Yes. Very reputable developer. Been around a long time. You're, you're fine installing their app. And uh, you're going to get a list. And like looking at mine, I can see a couple things in here that are ancient that I never use and a couple that I use often. And uh, if it's something you need to get your work done, now would be the time to contact the developers and find out what's going on. Maybe they've got some betas and they can get you in on their beta so you're, you're good on day one. Or maybe they won't respond to your email and you'll realize that you're going to lose that app and it's time to start looking for a replacement. But um, this is something that you don't want to discover after the install is complete. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Especially if it's critical to your workflow you know, every day. Scary, scary. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, iOS 13, you know, we've got iOS 13 and iPad OS. I think you call it iPad OS 13, but I'm not sure. I can't see. Yes. I think they've inherited the number. Yeah. It would make sense. Um, uh, compatibility. Once again, we've got iPhone 6S or newer, including the SE and iPod Touch 7th generation or newer, iPad Air 2nd generation or new. That's pretty good, iPad Air 2nd generation. And iPad Mini 4. And that is not the current one, right? That, Or is that the current one? I've lost track on the iPad Mini. I believe it's the one before the current one. But um, you need to take a look at that with respect to your devices, assuming that you've you've got it. And there's a lot of cool features. I am very excited about iOS 13, honestly. And I can't wait to talk about all the stuff we've been doing with it once they release it. Uh, But you've got to be ready for that. Another thing I guess you should be thinking about is, um, is the new reminders. I think that's the big one this year. I haven't had any compatibility issues with, with apps on. uh, So I have iOS 13 beta now on my phone. I've had on my iPad all summer. I haven't had any apps that, you know, just refuse to work. There are bugs here and there, but that's to be expected. Yeah. But reminders is like is kind of how Notes was several years ago, if you remember, where brand new Notes app, new formatting, and you had to upgrade your Notes database. And on devices that you didn't update, it would stop syncing. Reminders is the same way. When you launch Reminders in iOS 13, it says, hey, we have all this all this new stuff. If you want to use the new stuff, hit the update button and it will upgrade will upgrade your database for you. And it shows you these are the devices that you'll lose the syncability with. So for me, like my iMac Pro would have been left out, which would be sad. Uh, it will also break sharing with people who have not updated to iOS 13 and Catalina. So 
In my case, I have a shared grocery list with my wife. I'm an, I was 13. When I upgrade out, that grocery list will break between the two of us, and we can't reshare that until she's on I was 13 later this fall. So that's the, the tricky bit with I was 13. The new reminders looks really awesome, but if you're going to keep your Mac on something older or you're going to sync with someone who's not going to update, you need to be aware that you can't use those new features. And if you if you say remind me later, it's really easy to do in the future. The app basically works exactly how it used to, but with kind of the new UI, but none of the new features. And so that's the one. Don't just hit that button without thinking about it because you may end up breaking something somewhere else. Yeah, you know, it's, it's something to think about. It's kind of like the holistic upgrade approach anyway. Um, I mean, when we first started thinking about upgrades, you know, Apple made one device. It was a, a computer, but now they make so many different devices. And these updates all drop very close to one another. Mm-hmm. You have to think about, well, how is all this going to work together? Like maybe you you can't upgrade your Mac because there's a 32-bit app, for example, that you really need to get your work done, or even maybe a 64-bit app, but it's not upgraded for Catalina. It's going to cause a problem. But then how does that impact your decision on the iPhone and iPad? Well, um, like one of the things I'm dealing with, because I'm not, I'm, I'm running Mojave on my iMac Pro and I'm running the iOS 13.1 betas on my, on my mobile devices. Well, the new Notes app works great and there's some great additional features in Notes, but they don't show up on my iMac and mm-hmm. I'm getting some weirdness in between the sync of the two. I'm not losing data, but it's just... It's data isn't where I expect it to be because I'm working on two different operating systems. Same thing with reminders. So you may have a showstopper on the Mac that in the end prevents you from realistically upgrading anywhere. It's a good point. You know, we it's an ecosystem now. And that even extends to things like the Apple Watch and the HomePod, which will also have updates this fall. Yeah. And they're sort of self-contained, right? Like the watch just backs itself up before you update and the HomePod just does whatever the HomePod does. So we're not really covering them here. But you're absolutely right. You need a, a holistic view of this, especially if you're deep into like these built-in apps. Things, you know, you end up with sort of weird edge cases uh, from time to time. And I think I think Reminders is the one that will catch most people this year. But it's a really good point to consider every fall that it's not just a, a single thing anymore. These are all, they talk to each other in all these interesting ways that make them more useful. But also make them a lot more complicated. So I thought we could wrap up a little bit, giving a little bit more general advice about the the fall updates. So we mentioned yeah. a couple of these as we went, but maybe collecting them all uh, all in one place. Okay, you want to start with the Mac? Let's let's start with the Mac. So you want to make sure, obviously, that your device meets requirements. Mac OS won't install on a system that it can't run on, but you don't want to download it if you don't need it. Um, a question we get sometimes is, you know, is it okay to run an old version of Mac OS? Generally, Apple has security updates for the current release back to uh, for, for big security issues. The current minus one will sometimes get Safari uh, improvements or WebKit improvements. But I think you're within, you know, the current one or one back, you're still, you're still fine. You know, if you're running at this point, something like Mavericks, you know, you're not really getting security updates anymore. You're going to run into issues, but yeah. You want to make sure your hardware is is compatible, and you want to make sure that, like you said, your apps are in good shape to survive the 64-bit transition. If you have any 32-bit apps that show up and go 64, you want to deal with those now. And uh, But even beyond that, you want to confirm that key software works with Catalina. And, and honestly, the best way to do this, in my opinion, is 
go through things that you use, you know, in your critical workflows and check in on the developer websites, their Twitter accounts. And, you know, most developers will have a blog on their site and they'll have a a blog by saying, hey, we're ready for Catalina. Hey, we're not. So for instance, people like me and you doing podcasts, we want to make sure things like Audio Hijack, that that, that works because I need it every day. Something like the Skype will, will work. And I would say, do not assume that Apple's own software is good to go. So when I look at Go64, I just ran again on my iMac, uh, Final Cut, Motion, Compressor, three apps written by Apple. They're 64-bit, but they have 32-bit components within them. So Apple will need to update those. And they probably will by the time Catalina is out, but sometimes those lag a little bit, or sometimes it's not that it's broken, but it's buggy. So for instance, right now in the Catalina beta, Logic is really buggy when importing audio files, so which would be a deal breaker for me because I edit in Logic every day. Doing that little bit of research, you don't have to do it for every app on your system, but things that you really depend on day in and day out, you want to make sure are in good shape before you push that button. Yeah, agreed. I, I feel like, um, you know, just look at everything you use to make money with, you know, all the stuff that pays for yeah. your shoes. <laughs> and for everybody that's different, maybe it's Microsoft Word, it's something as simple as that. But just make sure that they support the new operating system before you push that button. Like I can tell you, for me, as eager as I was to push the button on some of my devices, the iMac Pro is probably not going to get upgraded on the day of release or even maybe even within a week or two. I, I'm mm-hmm. going to let dust settle on that. But but you need to check these things out. I, I know of the apps on my system that are always not ready. You know, like super duper usually is, but it's always close because it's a file system thing. Um, mail tags, which is a uh, an app I use as a mail plugin that helps supercharge Apple Mail. That's usually never ready on the first day, but they always have a beta. They usually have a beta ready on the first day, but not the, you know. So you get to know those apps. And, and it's the ones that do hacky system things that are always the slowest because, mm-hmm. you know, the developers don't want to try and fix it six times. You know, as you go through the beta process, things change. They don't want to fix it and have to fix it again. So some of those apps will wait till the end. And if those apps are key to you, you're just going to have to wait a little while. But, but, you know, go in and figure that out in advance. Just like I said with the 32 to 64-bit transition, after you install is not the time to find out that the, you know, the app that pays for your shoes no longer works. You're absolutely right. Uh, another thing I would do is before pushing the button, we talked about cloning the drive uh, with SuperDuper or Carbon Copy Cloner. This is an ideal situation for that app. You know, plug in a drive, make a complete clone on the old operating system before the upgrade, and then just put it in a drawer and keep it there for like a month or two. Don't override it because you, you may find out. I, I remember one year, for some reason, when I did the upgrade, I lost Hazel rules. You know, Yikes. I, I spent all this time making these Hazel rules, but I was able to just go get my clone, restore them from the clone, and all was good. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that will bite you. And you might not know it the day after you do the upgrade, but you'll definitely know it within a month or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes these things take a little while to show up. Yeah. I think a big thing is, like like you said, you don't have to do this on day one. Even if you buy a new iPhone this year, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners will, even if that's on thir- iOS 13, you can live with iOS 13 and Mojave on your work system uh, if you need to. There, there's no – you got to keep an eye out for reminders. But I, my advice is make sure that your system, your unique collection of tools and utilities you, you use is ready to go. Uh, that feels a lot more important on the Mac than it does on iOS, in particular this year. 
But a little bit of homework on the front end could save you a lot of heartache afterwards. Amen. Amen. And also, <laughs> if you've got people in your life that aren't listening to the show, help them out with this stuff, because I think there's going to be a lot of angry Mac users that rely on 32-bit apps sometime in September or October when they get this installed. You know, the Mac App Store makes it really tempting to upgrade, right? Like, I actually kind of don't like how easy it is in the Mac App Store, because it's, it's sometimes, eventually they'll send you a notification like, hey, you want to upgrade to this? And yeah. they make it too casual, I think, especially for this year. Uh, test your clones, test your backups, you know? I think if you're going to make a backup, make sure they work before you do the install. Make sure all those yes. copies of your photos library are good. Um, you know, it's just, there's a time, anytime you upgrade an operating system, there is a risk. It's like, you know, it's like when you go in for minor surgery, <laughs> they're still putting you under, right? You never know, right? And uh, so this is a minor surgery for your Mac. Make sure, you know, you have your affairs in order. <laughs> Wow. I know that that got kind of dark. Sorry. That got yeah, I got sort of heavy. Uh <laughs> on the on the mobile side, I'd say take the time, make an iTunes encrypted backup. Yeah. Uh just so you have it and make sure your iCloud backup is up to date. Because you know, maybe you didn't get on the charger over the last couple of nights and your backup's three days old or something. So make sure that your backups are in good shape uh moving forward to iPad OS or iOS. And to do that, just go on iCloud. Then the backups tab and look at the bottom, scroll the bottom, it'll tell you. Yep, it'll show you a date the last time it was successful. So that's, uh, that's I think, the most important thing to do is just make sure that backup's good to go. And then just know that, especially on like new phone day, <laughs> uh, the iCloud Restore may take a, a little bit longer than normal because you and a whole lot of other people are doing it all at the same time. So uh, I think I actually am going to try that uh, local restore uh, this time from my previous iPhone. I want to check that out. Yeah, me too. I think it's going to be faster. It just, it drives me nuts because I have a lot of apps waiting for them all to download over uh, iCloud Restore. Yep. It, it takes a while. What about the case for Nuke and Pave? And by that, I mean, rather than just upgrading in place, just like going into disk utility and just completely, you know, deleting your drive and restoring from scratch or doing the equivalent on the iPhone and iPad. Is there a case for that? I think there are people who who kind of believe in that every once in a while. My point of view is that even with these great backup options, that's still a lot of time out of my day. And I don't know the last time I nuked a machine just for fun. Like if you're having some sort of... Yeah, voluntarily. If you're having some sort of like, <laughs> you know, system, like Mac OS system problem and you can't get away uh, away from it, you know, it, it continues to, to hound you, then yeah, like maybe there's a case for backup with Time Machine, reinstall macOS, you know, format the drive or whatever. But I think for most people, most of the time, that's a thing in the past. Yeah. Every time I meet somebody or talk to someone online about this and they're like, hey, uh, shouldn't I do a nuke and pave? I always ask them, were you ever a PC user? And the answer is inevitably yes, because yeah. I don't know if it's true anymore, but there was a time on Windows where like every six months, it seemed like something you had to do and it actually improved the performance. Um, I just keep rolling, man. I, I keep going with my devices. I upgrade in place. I never knew can pave until something seriously breaks and I don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. I'm the same. 
I've got stuff in my user folder from like 10.4, probably. I, got, I just keep keep doing it. Yeah, I think that's probably safe. And and on iOS, I, I know friends who do that as well. They they install from scratch and they kind of look at it as a way to get rid of app bloat, you know, where you go through like you suddenly you've got all these apps on your device. So they just erase the phone and start from scratch. But I feel like a much easier solution to that is just to delete a bunch of apps. <laughs> but, you know, because the problem is when you do the nuke and pave, you've got all these passwords and settings. Even with iCloud and and you know uh, and one password and some of these other services, it just still takes so long to get things the, back to the way you had them. I think on iOS, in my experience at least, when I've done that in the past, is I find broken things for months and months because maybe there's an app or a, a shortcut that I use, you know, once a quarter. It's like, oh, this is broken, and now I got to fix it, and it interrupts what I'm trying to do. So, yeah. I'm a big proponent of just rolling forward on iOS. All right. So I guess to summarize, make sure on the Mac, make sure your software is good. Check the 32-bit stuff. Make a clone. Put it in a drawer. And um, and wait a few days before you install it. Sounds good to me. And then on iOS, plug it in. Make an iTunes backup. Make sure your iCloud is good. Wait a few days. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Yeah, I think so. I'm looking forward to these new operating systems coming out. I feel like Apple is... Um, I just wrote an article about this at Max Sparky the past week. I feel like Apple is pushing the envelope. I mean, the reason why, you know, it's kind of a little controversial that some of the features got pushed back to 13.1, but I would much rather have them have to push a few things back than, than bite off a lot less so they get it all at the .0 release. Does that make sense? It does. You know, I, I think that, you know, obviously I don't want them to miss everything, but, um, you know, reaching just a little too far isn't a bad idea in my opinion that's the way you make this stuff work and uh, so we're going to do a whole show on catalina and the ios stuff we've got a lot of cool uh, things steve and i have both been using the betas for some time so i think we've got the the scars and the joy that come from betas and uh, (laughs) we're going to share that all with you pretty soon here but next week is episode 500 and um, thank you everybody for listening and and going on this journey with us. And I think episode 500 came out great. I can't wait to share it with you. Yeah, it's going to be uh, really special. All right. Thanks to our sponsors, SaneBox, Smile, Hover, and Squarespace. See you next week for episode 500.